Six o'clock in London, it's 1pm in New York, 1am in Hong Kong, 3am in Sydney, 10am in San Francisco and 10.30 at night in Mumbai. Greetings, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever in the world you are today. My name is Patrick L. Young, the IPO Vid Livestream Series 6, Episode 2. That's number 32 in the pantheon of live streams. Starts here. And first up, ladies and gentlemen, a fond farewell to the most influential CFO of the Exchange Parish. Scott Hill oversaw some 40 epic deals in 14 years at the helm of the rapidly expanding balance sheet of the Intercontinental Exchange Group. He departed office last Friday. All the best to Scott and indeed welcome to Warren Gardner, who clearly has a thing about filling big shoes. After all, he arrived at ICE to run investor relations, stepping into the position left by the inestimably brilliant Kelly Loeffler. And now Warren is moving on up. He's stepping up to fill the role which Scott Hill excelled in for the past 14 years. Meanwhile, unfortunately, not such a good tale of the balance sheet. It's business as usual over at the failing TPI cap, which has a crazy plan, but no clear strategy, an incoherent management and an increasing black hole masquerading as accounting where the numbers just don't add up. In the middle of all that came the latest results, which showed another 9% drop in quarterly revenue and yet more disappointment. True, the stock is a fair distance off its lows, but the simple truth is the company has now gone, well, worse than nowhere for five whole years. Let's not waste any time over going that old ground and recovering that once again, but just do some simple math. TPI cap, Tullet Prebon, which is at that point in time a billion pound company, completed the 1.28 billion pound acquisition, that's $1.6 billion for our American viewers, of ICAP on December the 30th, 2016. That was all of the old voice-broking assets of the Michael Spencer ICAP empire. At the same time, earlier this year, TPICAP finished the purchase, a total consideration of the deal for LiquidNet on the March the 20th, 4th, 2021 was $700 million. But the amount it's actually on the hook for in the course of the near future is about $525 million, 375 million pounds in old money with another $50 million or 36 million pounds in three years. And oh, there's also a possible $125 million, which is performance related. I think we can probably discount the performance-related issue, given that the LiquidNet deal completed at the same time SIBO announced it was acquiring ChaiX Asia-Pacific, and thus enabling Bids Asia to take flight. Thus, the TPI cap likelihood of reaching the air of $125 million on LiquidNet can probably be discarded. However, just to take you back through that quick bit of not overly tough math, we have £1.28 billion pounds plus £36 billion pounds plus £375 million, pounds, sorry, £36 million pounds and £375 million, pounds, which leaves us roughly at £1.691 billion. Pounds. As of now, the TPI cap market capitalization is £1.72 billion. Pounds. So we're barely, we're talking about well, a little chance of nothing more than roughly 30 million or so pounds or something like that, which is all that remains of the billion pound balance sheet that was Tullet Prebond before it ever dreamed of taking over ICAP to become a behemoth. Okay, so maybe having a significant number of leg legacy, podgy, middle-aged health risks on the book, 
they're also known as brokers, may be regarded as a liability, but there must surely be some assets books on the books of TPICAP, as per se its market capitalization pre-ICAP was, as we said, a billion pounds. That suggests that this frankly inspired run of value destruction, and don't even get me started on the egregious dilution from the liquid net related rights issue the other month, has been, well, what can we say? A failure of management, a failure of strategy, and ultimately, sadly, TPI cap burning pretty much all possible bridges as a parish leader. And we're gonna get back to TP, or at least the T of the TP in a few minutes, because this is, I suppose, a sad way to introduce our guest today. However, let me say, all this information and more, much, much more, has already been covered in greater detail at the Bourse Business Water Cooler Exchange Invest Daily, the unique newsletter of the exchange market business. Send us an email or hit me up on social media, wherever you're watching this, Patrick L. Young, and we can get you organized to have a free 30-day trial, which will not only help you understand the exchange business much, much better, but also indeed help pay for the lavish expenditure of our gallery of producers for the likes of this live stream. In the meantime, let me ask you one thing before I introduce our guest today. Please, 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 a little bit of love. Give us anything, a like, a comment, whatever it is. We would love to see it. It helps rush us up to the top of the search engine optimization whizzy thingies and therefore allows more people to know all about the IPO vid live stream. Because today's topic is towards a digital market profile. And we've got a super extinct technical analyst guest today with us, Clive Lambert. Clive is the author of Candlestick Charts, published by Harriman House in 2009. He has over 30 years of market experience, including a decade on the floor of the London International Financial Futures, better known as Life Exchange. He's run his own technical analysis business, providing private analysis for the finest of the investing world the world over, called Futures Techs, since 2018. What a rise rank number to form in. Clive is the Vice Chairman of the UK Society of Technical Analysts, great people, and he's the European Vice President of IFTA, the International Federation of Technical Analysts, which it was my pleasure to address as a keynote many, many years ago. Clive has appeared on CNBC and Reuters TV, amongst other media, is quoted widely on Newswise, and much more importantly, he's here in the studio tonight coming to you on IPO Vid Livestream. Clive, good evening. Where in the world are you today? Hello, sir. Um, I am in Essex, being an Essex boy. I uh, not too far from my roots, and I'm currently coming to you live and direct from uh, the shed at the bottom of my garden, or, or should I should I call it my garden room, my garden office. So, yes, good to see you. Excellent altogether. Well, nothing wrong with sheds these days. They've been a, a prime source of offices for lockdown. I imagine you've got one of those very snazzy numbers like David Cameron has from which he answers questions by people asking him about backhanders in Parliament and things like that these days. But we certainly can't accuse you of taking any backhanders whatsoever, Clive. So actually, it's quite funny, isn't it? I mean, here we are talking about TPI cap and the decline and possible fall of a great name, the value destruction. And where did we meet all those years ago? At a little old company called Tulliton Tokyo, which I suppose means that if you've had 30 years experience in financial markets, I must have too, but I'm obviously looking very young on it. <laughs> At the same time, it's it's actually incredible, isn't it? So think about that. When was that? Late 1980s, we were all working together across the floor. Gosh, was that still back in the Royal Exchange at that point in time? I did uh, one or two years on Royal Exchange before it moved to Cannon Bridge. And prior to that, I actually cut my teeth in futures 
uh, at uh, in the Sydney Futures Exchange. In fact, I did a uh, I did a stint in Sydney um, and bef on the futures floor there, and then uh, came back to London and uh, and carried my carried on my futures career there, and that was all after having done three or four years as a, a, a very ju very junior squeaky voice junior stockbroker's clerk on the old stock exchange floor for a brief time <laughs> oh absolutely incredible well certainly sydney futures exchange great place and, and also very civilized because they used to have a lunch break if i remember an hour and a half for lunch in which uh time some of the traders used to go surfing at bondi beach well, certainly beats drinking, which is what every other trader did on their lunch break in London. Yes. And it was actually, uh, you know, over a steak and a, a Burgundian pie uh, at a certain establishment around the corner to the exchange where I first bumped into a mutual friend of ours, Mrs. Uh, Miss Kathy Lyle. So, Gosh. Me and Lyle go back. Yeah, that was 1990. <laughs> <laughs> Quite incredible altogether. Quite incredible looking back on these aged days all together and good evening let me say so to christopher messina thank you very much for sending us a message of nothing but love this evening chris thoroughly appreciated good to see you back watching the show as always chris has been an illuminating guest on this show with our first guest and he was also back in the studio just a couple of weeks ago talking about all sorts of things including rare earths so if we're talking about the world of rare earths, well, we'll probably get back to, to that in a minute. But, I mean, futures markets, the development of futures markets has been absolutely sensational, hasn't it, over the course of the last 20, 30 years? I mean, you think about where we were at ASX in 1990 or the life floor in 1992, the present day, quite amazing. Yeah, I mean, there was 800 people in the Royal Exchange when I started on the floor and uh, towards the end of the 90s, when I left, when I finished up on the uh, new floor, there was well over three, well, three and a half thousand, I think. They just had to keep knocking bits out to make the floor bigger. Where, you know, and then and then suddenly, bang, everyone was doing their UX exams. It all went electronic and it happened so, so quickly. And it was really quite a, quite a uh, shocking um, time how quickly that happened to, to, to the life floor. You know, the boom pit just going like that. Although I was lucky enough to be um, broking on the short end of the market, the Stearns, the Euromarks and the Eurolira as it was then. So, so we managed to, uh, life held on to those contracts and I managed to stick around. And yeah, and then moved up to the office with this Italian bank uh, that I was working for, Caboto Securities. Um, and yeah, I mean, when I started in the office, we didn't, have, we weren't allowed to go to lunch anymore. It was all a big culture shock. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, that's when I started writing analysis, basically, when I started looking at the charts and, and, and putting stuff out to people. Uh, that was sort of uh, the story of my transition, if you like, once the floor packed up. Which well, it's incredible to think about it, actually. I mean, you're talking about a couple of things there. Apart from the fact that, good grief, well, how on earth can that be the end of civilization? Surely when you go and work for an Italian bank and they won't let you work for lunch, it seems absolutely sacrilegious. But one of the things you mentioned there, which is quite intriguing, of course, is uh, Euro market, Euro lira. I mean, we've now got a whole generation of traders who are only used to the idea of a euro. They didn't realize we used to have the joys and excitement of different yield curves. 
Oh, hold on a second, though. Yield curves, you don't really have those anymore either in these quantitative East times. Anyway, they used to be different <laughs> currencies, right? I mean, there were all these different currencies all around Europe. So it's quite incredible to look back on that. You had open outcry trading. You had separate currencies for the whole of what is now the Eurozone. And some of them were incredibly volatile indeed. The market of the lira indeed was, certainly the lira was spectacularly volatile throughout time. And nowadays, then, as you say, I mean, suddenly this thing happened, the Battle of the Boond, which is mentioned in a certain book called Capital Market Revolution, which uh, was written by yours truly in 1999, describing how that all happened. And there's your copy, Clive. Oh, delighted to see it. Glad <laughs> to see it. Gosh, after it looking pristine after all those years. That's very impressive. Very impressive. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm honoured that it's sitting up there taking pride of place alongside your own excellent tome on, on candlestick charting. That, that's uh, very exotic altogether. But, but then, of course, the thing fascinating about that is you look at the whole revolution. I mean, we went from floor to screen. You had the death of the sort of the local trader business. You've got all sorts of changes in the way proprietary trading works, the growth of algorithms. But at the same time, sort of the more things change, the more things stay the same in a certain way, didn't it? Well, you know, um, it's you just had your say about um, TPI cap, um, which I couldn't possibly comment on. Uh, <laughs> but um, that's a voice broking business, and I honestly thought in two thousand when I packed up broking um, that 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 broking would would be dead, um, and you know it's defied that for 20 years voice broken is still a thing to this day especially in some of the markets that i'm involved in these days on the energy side of things and that so i that's one observation i make straight away is the remarkable resilience of voice broking uh, throughout the last 20 years i really honestly thought that it was dead 20 years ago and i was wrong uh, it's very prop but i mean what mm -hmm. prop trading had a very prop traders had a very interesting uh, time during that as well. Yes, you know you had your local traders on the floor. Some of them transitioned very very nicely into screen trading. Some of them just didn't. Some of them got out and just did something else. Terry Crawley, who was the uh, big trader in the um, Italian bomb pit on life, um, never ne never traded again after the floor closed, and um, instead took up playing golf and. Um, and got his son, got his son playing cricket, and his son now plays cricket for England. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I haven't. There's a family with some talent, right? I must, I must, I missed that. I hadn't realised Terry Crawley's son ended up playing uh, playing cricket for England. So, that, that, well, it's quite incredible. But yeah, I mean, the whole floor of the screen thing was interesting. So, I mean, I remember the CME was the only exchange in the world that actually coherently tried to train its teach its, its teach its traders to go from floor to screen. And I was actually, I was delighted to be part of that whole initiative under Vice Chairman Jimmy Olaf. And uh, it was it was amazing because in London, there just wasn't any chance to train people. I mean, the whole thing just, it exploded so quickly. The floor was gone within a matter of months and everybody was crawling around trying to work out what to do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I remember going to Chicago in 2005 or six, I think, to, 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 to uh, sit in a room with a panel of people from London who, um, you know the CME had sort of got us over there to talk to talk to the locals on the floor there about you know the realities of, of screen trading um and yeah I mean that I enjoyed that trip it was a good one I think it was all around the same time as um what were the what was the um 
Futures Week thing in November when it always snowed. Expo. 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 Yeah, FA Expo. Yeah. Rolled into that and it was a, a, an absolute, you know, I love a trip to Chicago. You can't beat it, can you? Um, but yeah, we would, you know, we were over there to sort of say, right, well, this is how we're doing things in London. Um, and they were just looking at us as if to say, yeah, but we don't want it. We, we're not interested. And we're kind of going, well, give you a clue. <laughs> Whether you want it or not, it, it, it was smack in the face and happen at some point, and you're just going to have to back on with it because that's what happened to us. It was, yeah, as you say, just almost overnight, and you know, people had to adapt extremely quickly. And some did, some yeah. Did. I remember going to CME at that time, and actually, there was a the, the, I was trying to find a way to really hook them into being interested in this whole week course of information so they would pay attention. And there was actually, I think, the Sunday magazine of the, of the, the Chicago uh, Tribune had run um, an article about what people earned in Chicago. And I pulled this out. And you know, people, they were all very dismissive. And I said, well, just understand the thing. You know, essentially, it is incredibly difficult to make $50,000 a year in this time, at which they were all incredibly dismissive and bursting out laughing. And I said, and now let me tell you about someone I know who used to work on the life floor, and he's not alone, and he's now a dog walker. And dog walkers make, and it was however many dollars it was, which was not $50,000. And the whole room was absolutely silent as this got in. And then I left them all an email, and they could, they could contact me anonymously. And that night, when I got back to a friend's house where I was staying, I had like a dozen emails all headlined, I don't want to be a dog walker. Okay, I'll listen. How do I do technical trading? How do I understand how to look at screens? It's quite incredible, the whole thing altogether. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean yeah. my, my personal experience, it was it was one of those seminal moments, and it was I, I set up a business on the back of it because mm -hmm. I'm known on the floor as a, one of the chart guys. You know, if you want to know where your levels are for the Buddha today, go and speak to, to Carol over there or Clive over there because they're the guys that do the charts. They do the guys that do the levels. And so that's how I set my business up. So for me, the the, the floor closing was was absolutely one of those key moments in my career. It's because that's when I started the business. And I wouldn't have been able to start the business without having half a dozen of those guys as clients from day one. As yeah. Well other you know i mean kaboto hung around with the client for a few years as well and one of my first clients was marquette partners which was at the time being run by someone else that you probably know pretty well a top man um dave felters dave felters yeah that's yeah. fantastic it's, it's incredibly incredibly incestuous the way all these things go <laughs> dave felters Dave Feltus is one disadvantage being in life that he didn't actually work for Tullets, unlike you, me. Um, and also, I suppose, he almost worked there, Jake Pugh, who was an earlier guest in this series about 25 right. episodes uh, ago. So, yeah. yes, absolutely. I mean, there's so many of these different, different parties all the way around. So anyway, I mean, the resilience, but looking at the resilience of voice broking, I mean, the resilience of voice broking is all because of a certain kind of negotiated product, isn't it? I mean, where you look at simple transactions, buying and selling of futures, the things you used to do in the, you know, in the Italian lira, Euro lira pit and things like that, or the Euro mark pit, that all just went electronic without any great difficulty whatsoever, sure. didn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and therefore, you've got this resilience of voice broking where you can ha end up with a negotiated product in some way, shape or form, which is quite incredible. And then we're at this sort of interesting interregnum now. I mean, what are you thinking about this 
amazing COVID-y, GameStop-y, Reddit, R Wall Street bets, retail megalomania, and crypto. Well, and I'll just, I'll just leave you to answer that for the next 40 minutes, actually. <laughs> uh, it's certainly made life quite interesting in the last uh, sort of six months to a year, hasn't it? I, I remember when the um, GameStop thing happened and then they said, like, right, next, next, we're going to have got silver next. And I remember thinking, yeah, well, good luck with that because silver's a proper big boys market and um, mm. yeah, big boys and girls playing in that one and you might have a bit of trouble. Uh, you know, it's, it, that, that's not a that's not a small cap um, video shop chain. You know, that's uh, it's a big market with some big players in it. Um, I and as far as coins and things are concerned, um, I I'm now having to. Um, read up and learn and get to know these things they actually chart pretty nicely a lot of these things and you can and so i am sort of um you know i'm going to be dipping a toe into that space uh, as far as, as you know as an analyst soon um but um yeah, it's, it's um it it's their markets at the end of the day they're markets that go up and down and and you can trade them and i think that the most important thing may be that anyone like myself and and experienced operators can do is to try and educate people into into how to actually you know hold on to your money and um and and how to you know work stop borders strategies and just simple stuff like that because you're gonna see it and we've seen it before we've seen it you know tulips 300 years ago um people will just hold on and watch it go all the way back down again and the, and you know someone who you know, three weeks ago was a was a was a millionaire ends up with nothing because they didn't get out <laughs> quite simply and i think that's probably one of the biggest um challenges that maybe or you know that would i think that's an exciting thing for someone like me and and people like us to be able to try and help people to um to navigate if you like and and yeah well, i mean isn't it great that there's so much interest in trading from left, right, and centre everywhere? So many people interested. I, 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 you know, I, I, I like that. I like that. Apart from when people are asking me about it down a pub, and I'm like, oh, look, I'm having a drink. I'm not really interested. <laughs> it's, it's a bit like technical analysis when you're out of arts. It's a bit like comedy. You don't want to talk about it, right? It's the same thing. When you meet Rowan Atkinson and he's going car racing or something, he's completely unfunny because that's his work persona. It's a totally different thing altogether. So <laughs> when, I, when I do training seminars and I get to talking about the head and shoulders pattern, I say, this is one that people ask me about at dinner parties. <laughs> I say, what do you do, Clive? Oh, I'm a technical analyst. What? All that like head and shoulders stuff? And yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, that, that's really interesting. Uh, no, it's not. <laughs> it really isn't. <laughs> that's just my view. <laughs> Well, we're here at the model, ladies and gentlemen, working our way towards a digital market profile with Clive Lambert. He's the proprietor of the business Future Techs, providing lots of proprietary traders and investment houses and other major public 
entities the world over with technical analysis information. If you want to ask him a question, we're currently live on multiple streams, so just pop us a question there and we'll be happy to answer it. Thank you very much to Christopher Messina. I see you making a couple of interesting comments along the way. Uh, yes, indeed, on your first comment, what a tiny world. A bunch of my college pals went to work for Marquette in the mid-1990s. I totally forgot that. Yes, I, I, the Marquette guys were absolutely fantastic. Quite an incredible company in Chicago and London. Yeah, their, their, their London offices in Shad Thames are absolutely neat as you like. They were excellent. I love going in there and, and chatting to those guys. And, you know, it was a really neat office. And, um, yeah, they, they embraced my analysis early doors and, and um, you know, were clients right until the last couple of years, really. But um, that which probably sort of segues into something else we can talk about with, uh, with respect to sort of client demographic of mine these days because it's changed quite a lot i mean it's changed it's changed for about the third or fourth time in 20 years but um well that's, yeah. that's interesting because let's let's move on to that about technical analysis first of all just a quick shout out i'm going to come to chris's question in a moment but first of all yes he's giving us a quick bit of pr one of his messy times podcasts i do believe has been talking all about gamestop and reddit are not the uh, the sort of droids you're looking for so there you go that's a podcast you can pick up ladies and gentlemen messy times with christopher messina i was lucky enough to be a guest on that just a few weeks ago it's a great conversation uh, in this case we were doing it from valletta malta where i am too the middle the heartland of florida where in fact the great american secondary migration is going on at the moment that's not the one where the foreigners are trying to get in that's the one where the new yorkers are trying to get out of the tri-state area anyway enough of florida we'll come back to chris's question in a minute so tell us a little bit i mean how you got into technical analysis i mean you said okay you started making levels at Kaboto and so on because they wouldn't let you out for lunch but what actually drove you to take an interest in technical analysis Clive? It was partly my belief, uh, which I've already touched on, that the broking uh, was going to die. Uh, and I was sitting in an office, um, broking, um, but my broking skills were hand signals, shouting, and counting up very quickly all the skills all the skills you had on the floor and i wasn't the only ex-floor person sitting in an office looking at a screen going crikey like what the hell's going on here and um and i i felt uh that if i if i wanted to uh you know stay in this game that i needed a, a supplementary skill i needed a broking usp if you like and i still believe that's the case now for any young broker you know, anyone starting out and broking i say to them find a usp find a thing that you're good at that you can where you can add value um and that's what i was thinking so i so and there was a chap sitting on the desk who was bored with putting levels out on the bund and the btp every day and i just said to my boss can i do it um can i do the levels instead of andy because he doesn't want to do it anymore and actually that boss laughed at me and i said that oh clive oh, ha, ha, ha. so you think you're a technical analyst do you and i just said well no but you know i've got to start somewhere and um six months later he's taken me to hedge funds offices in london and saying this is clive he's our technical analyst <laughs> so i sort of looked at him and went oh okay so so i am now am i <laughs> um, because it turned into quite a successful pro uh, product 
quite early doors and i went from you know the guy that was doing it before me was just putting it just just typing it onto a bloomberg page and sending it whereas i stuck it into a powerpoint tried to make it look pretty and turn it into an actual product which yeah and that was the start of it all for me really Fascinating. So therefore, I mean, Chris Messina, he's asked a great question to kick things off straight into a higher gear about technical analysis. And he's saying, Clive, which markets are more amenable to technical analysis than others? Um, every market trades differently and has different personality. And so you can't apply the same technical analysis to um, to, to Brent crude as you would to yeah, to to short sterling, um, so and that's obviously a, a thing that comes with experience. I find my, I mean, well, the very simple way to answer Chris's question is this: I have over the years been asked to analyse all sorts of different markets that I've never even looked at before. Uh, can you do technical analysis? I did some work for CME and CBOT uh, back in the. Uh, in the late in, in 2005 to 2010 and they said can you do can you do charts and analysis on the ags for us and i went yeah i'll give it a go i never looked at them before I never looked at a soybean chart in my life but I'll, yeah okay fine when i started doing the energy uh, markets and i was doing a white label for the broker gfi and they said can you look at coal can you look at carbon can you look at um can, can you can you look at gas all these things all these things that I'd never looked at in my life and I said yeah and I said the same thing I went yeah I'll just I'll I'll use the toolbox that I use and I'll you know I'll learn on the fly and we'll see how it goes and um and it and yeah it worked out very well if there was if I had to choose what markets are more amenable uh, to technical analysis than others I would say as a rule of thumb, if a market has very mixed uh, fundamentals, then people tend to look at the technicals a little bit more. So where the where you have a market where the fundamentals sort of um, are quite solid or well covered um, analyst-wise, um, then that can, you know, using the technicals alongside the fundamentals can work well. But if you've got a market, and one example is carbon emissions. I've, I've sat with on panels uh at conferences about carbon where people have said completely the opposite two fundamentalists have said completely the opposite one said it should be zero one said it should be 100 and you're going and, and someone came up to me in one of these and said to me um said said i tell you what i tell you why they think technicals work is because um because no one's got a bloody clue about fundamentals <laughs> so i was just smiled and went okay great yeah that I, I could live with that sort of thing you know um so yeah uh it's you know there's no hard and fast answer to that but um hopefully that puts some color around that that sort of question i think it's a testament to technical analysis as a methodology and as a as a art, art or whatever you want to call it that i have been able to transpose my skill set across asset classes and i actually pride myself on knowing bugger all about the fundamentals on most of the markets that i analyze i don't want to know why things are going up or down i'm just looking at the price i'm your price guy 
This is what my and my clients love this as well. They love the fact that what they're getting from me is pure 100% technical analysis without me, without my opinion coming into the equation at all. So I'm just looking at the chart and my analysis will purely be based on the chart. So for me, actually, I prefer to know as little as possible about the fundamentals. Interesting. So I'm, I'm going to go back. Thank you very much for that question, Chris and Sina. I'm going to come back to this next question in the Slack from Chris Prywell. Good evening, Chris. It's lovely to see you this evening. Um, I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. Uh, if I can have the second question, actually, there's a follow-up from Chris Messina, which I think is quite useful. If I may have that on the screen, please. So do you keep a tracking record, Clive, of each set of predictions versus the realized market results? And if so, are there any technical course corrections to the methodology? Right, I, I don't keep a track record because I don't tend to um, suggest outright trades on a, on a, day, you know, a daily or weekly basis. And the reason I don't is because I've got, in most of the markets I analyze, I've got a, a wide range of clients with respect to their timeframes and what they want out of, of the analysis. So I've got to try and sort of write analysis that sort of pleases everyone sort of thing. So, you know, I will talk about the short-term trend and short-term levels and then what's the bigger picture trend and what's the bigger picture targets and that kind of thing. So no, I don't actually have a firm track record uh, of my analysis apart from, you know, Apart from saying that I've had some of my clients I've had for 15 years and some of my clients that I've got now are amongst the, you know, some of the biggest companies in the energy trading space and um, and, they're, and they're still buying it, you know, and still reading it every day. So, um, yeah, that's sort of an answer, isn't it? <laughs> Oh, it's interesting. Thank you very much once again, Chris and Messina. I think it's I think it's an answer in that no, you don't. Uh, I think that was the answer you were going for there. No. <laughs> that's an interesting piece of science or non-science in terms of the uh, the development of what you've been doing there, Club. I keep a great question from Chris Pryor. When you're and given your floor experience and uh, given the fact that you've talked about how voice broking has never gone away. crap around alternative uses for the LME floor because as we know the ring is currently under threat and in early June they're going to decide its future which is the idea of using the LME ring as a nursery for new products and contracts do you think that has legs um, I've got some pretty firm views on the LME to be honest and I've got some friends who are ring traders um but and i and again in my you know we're almost harking back to the same thing i said about the death of broking and i got that wrong i've been absolutely amazed how that exchange has managed to stay you know to, to remain a, a open outcry as long as it has and i think that possibly covid has um as 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 sort of um you know, this, the tide, the tide's gone out, if you like. Um, okay, but I think maybe what Chris is trying to ask is not so much about metals per se, but actually looking at just, there's a ring. There's this lovely row of bunkets, the, the semicircle either side, that could be used for some form of alternative trading. 
maybe not in something that might rust or be an element. What do you think about the idea that that could possibly be used as a way to be a, a nursery for the trading of certain new products, instruments, whatever? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know whether that's got legs. Um, I, I think that there should be a restaurant in London that's um, based around futures where you have to, um, you know, you have to bid up for cocktails or something. And <laughs> maybe it should have all like lovely Fibonacci spirals everywhere as well. Maybe that's not what I need to do. There used to be, there used to be a fish and chip shop, actually, I found a rather upmarket fish and chip shop. I think it was Jeels, it was called or something in, in Notting Hill, where you could endlessly have an entertaining time because you pretty much needed to record what the price was with the timestamp when you ordered the fish because they'd move the price of the fish up as they ran out of stock. And then by the time you paid your bill, if you happened to have pudding, then usually you'd find that the price of the fish had gone up, at which point in time you'd say, no, 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 it was only £10 when I ordered it. And they go, no, no, it's £12.50, it says so on the board. So there was also all sorts of issues with time stamping, pr price reporting. It really, it was unregulated in the extreme. It just goes to show how well-run futures markets are in this world. Um, okay, well, it's interesting. Thank you very much, Chris Brown. I do think there is an incredibly interesting opportunity for mercantile commerce of some shape or form to take place in the ring because it's a, a multi-purpose reusable venue. I'm not sure it's going to be the home of the future of incredible futures contracts as of now that are going to trade a lot because those are the sorts of things like Merban, where they create a future exchange for ICE futures Abu Dhabi. Um, interesting what you're saying about, about the whole concept of auctions as well about carbon and so on and obviously tomorrow at midday uk time we've got the first uk carbon auctions that have ever taken place because they're now separate from the eu alliances and that's going to lead to there's a new futures contract being released actually tomorrow morning i do believe in, uh, in carbon emissions for the uk alone and that's of course with no offset into the eu so there'll be even more strident opinions the next time you're invited onto a panel for that one because it'll be brexiteers remainers carbon up carbon down Good grief. If you throw in Greta Thunberg, it'll probably be a near riot. Quite fascinating altogether. What, what technical analysis can manage to make out of that? So tell us, Clive, when you're using technical analysis, we're not trying to get all of the secret sauce of what you're doing. Thank you very much once again, Chris Messina and Chris Barwillier, for your questions today. But give us a little walk through. You wrote an excellent book on candlestick charting. What different range of tools do you do you use during the course of a day's technical analysis? Yeah, my approach is basically, in very basic terms, two pronged, uh, which is candlestick analysis uh, on all sorts of different time frames, um, and I overlay that with um, Chicago's favourite way of uh, looking at charts, which is market profile, which you managed to cleverly sneak into the title of. Uh, about a little chat here um and market profile was developed in the states and is in, in very basic terms volume price analysis it tells you what volume has gone through at each level and whether you have certain price levels uh, where there's a lot of activity or conversely very little activity because price the auction process of price moving up and down to attract buyers and sellers and to, uh, to, to balance supply and demand, does see prices um, magnetized, what's the word I'm looking for? Gravitating back towards some, towards these high, high volume areas or, you know, or breaking through low volume areas and just going bang. And so 
so that is, is is my you know i combine the two uh and you know it reasonably pretty successfully i guess because you know clients keep coming back for more um and so yeah that's very much my approach is is profile and candlesticks um overlaid if you like excellent so let me ask another question then when are we going to see your book about market profile I've tried writing a book about market profile about five times in the last 10 years, and it is a really difficult subject to try and make simple and trying to put in black and white. I've sat with thousands of traders over the last 20 years and sat with them and you know next to them and said right so come on in you know what are you what are you looking at what 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 technicals do you use? And the ones that say market profile, I go, right, show me, you know, show me how you use it. And they've all they all give me a different answer. They've all given me a different answer. And so it's it's a and and actually the the book on market profile. Um is that the Dalton Dalton Jones book? Yeah, mind over market. Mind over markets, yeah. That is a phenomenal book. 30 years old. I yeah. can't stand this book. I can't stand it. I I find it incredibly difficult uh, to read, and so my and that's no disrespect to these chaps who you know. I mean that, that re it, because once you do get into it, yes, it is it's and it is the tome and it is a it is a good book. But I always found it really difficult and so i've often thought come on in clive you know yeah just what you just said like, come on write that book and um i've given up more times than yeah <laughs> i've just given up each time i don't know whether it's because i've got no discipline <laughs> well what, in, what interests me is that the idea that I, I don't disagree with you mind over markets is an incredibly complex book and the actual books by pete stubblemeyer himself who originally created the whole market profile and coded it I mean, they actually tend to be a little bit old and eccentric, if, if, I, if you don't mind my saying so. I mean, I think I think he's a genius, but they're sort of semi-biographical, but at the same time, they, they leave a lot of information aside, which is not so clear. So if you find one book to be, how do you actually learn Market Profile if you can't read the books? I learned it um, on, the, on the go. I learned it from traders, and I learned it just off, you know, off my own... Um, uh, just from from practical experience and i mean this is something that quite often people say to me that they like about my um analysis is that it is very much written from a trading and a trader's standpoint a lot of technical analysis can be quite dry and can be written by people who have never been near a trade you know a trading book or a trading floor whereas um my, I have always tried to write my analysis like I'm talking to a trader, and that's where I learned a lot of um, of the profile stuff from is traders. And you know, and said been to Chicago. Every time I went to Chicago, I was running around as many futures trading offices as I could to sit down with guys who were using profiles to say, right, well, in how do you use it? <laughs> um, so yeah, it's um, yes. I've learned a lot from Mind Over Markets and Stolmeyer and and, and 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 those books, but um, I would also say that quite a lot of what I've done is been um, just on the job learning, really. Same with the same, and the same with um, 
with the candlestick stuff it's price action at the end of the day and i that's what you used to watch on the floor you know, unfolding in front of you in the pits i remember once um, a, a local tra a prop trader after the floor closed said to me i don't use technical analysis i trade price action and i just laughed <laughs> mate it's, it's the same thing <laughs> so technical analysis is a graphical representation of price action <laughs> what how can you you know and then he and then he sort of tried to explain himself a bit and, and i got it after all what he was saying is he doesn't need the charts to know where the levels are because he's he's there glued to it the whole day yeah and i said well yeah that's fine but not everyone's like you and not everyone's got a photographic memory for every level so you do need you know that but and the chart technical analysis and the chart is a way of telling the story of price action yeah really important yeah. Interesting altogether. We've got a great comment coming from Alex Wilkinson talking back to this debate about the future of the LME, the London Metal Exchange of Rings. Um, he's saying that, yes, LME could be a nursery for new traders, but it's unlikely that regulators would be like mercantile commerce being transacted outside an auditable framework. I don't think anybody's suggesting that it'll avoid an auditable framework. I think there are lots of ways these things can be done, but it's just the idea of creating some sort of a more negotiated venue could be something a little bit different in order to manage to develop what needs to be some other thinking about the way that the City of London is working. Alex, great to hear from you. Thank you very much. You followed that up with an excellent question. So the question from Alex is, Clive, don't you find the frequency of government intervention is poisoning technical and fundamental analysis to the point where every trend is now analyzed with the caveat that it's depending on the next tweet from Biden, Trump, Musk, etc. Interesting question. Yeah, I mean, um, I think that's why um, that's why I think that's what prop traders may be concentrating on more than anything now. Prop traders, traditional financial futures prop traders, which were, you know, for ten years my most important client demographic. That's why they're not anymore, because that's what they're trading. Um, but I think what, what, yeah, there's, there's what I would say is that whilst uh, a tweet from these various people, maybe Musk in the last week, is the exception to this. But whilst a Trump tweet a year ago might move the market thirty ticks, um, then the market, then the auction process will kick in, and you will accept or react to that move. And so the technical analysis is the map of um, of, the, of the market overall. And so the charts will, the charts will reflect whether the market accepts or, or responds to those noise moves, if you like. So I think that technical analysis is a way of taking a step back from the noise and saying, What's the bigger picture here? Very interesting. So let me ask a question. Thank you very much, Alex, for that most illuminating suggestion. And certainly in the world of QE killing yield curves, it's fascinating to see how reliant we've become on government. But then if we look at the overall change you've seen over 30 years from floor-based markets to fully electronic markets, in essence, I mean, there are one or two pits left in the world, but basically everything is electronic. Have you found any major differences in how useful technical analysis is? I yeah, I've been asked this question a lot, and um, and 
one thing that that I've sort of realized having answered this question a few times now is that, that I'm I'm still bigger picture wise probably using a very very similar set of tools technical analysis wise than I was 20 years ago so so no is the answer um markets have changed how trading is done and you do get um you do get maybe times where there's extreme moves based on tweets and stuff um but bigger picture um ta for me still works and the, the similar methodologies you know you two weeks ago um wells wilder died and wells wilder was the chap that came up with um with rsi the indicator rsi and you know that <laughs> my two of my bookshelf right new new concepts in technical analysis by j wells wilder this book was talking about new concepts in technical analysis in 19 Eight, the, the, 1978. We're still using RSI with the same, um, yeah, lots of people are still using RSI with the same parameters as he came up with in 1978 with a computer the size of my garden to be able to crunch the numbers over four days to work out what was the best, you know, the best settings for these things or how, you know, what, how these things work. So that resilience, if you like, I think is a testament to to his work and a testament to a lot of technical analysis methodologies basically and, and obviously i'm gonna champion this and, yeah shout it from the rooftops because yes i've made a living out of it for the last 25 years and i'm also yeah as you introduced me earlier vice chair of the society of technical analysts and and on the board of uh, IFTA as well so yeah, yeah. What do you say? Of course, I'm going to say technical analysis is great and it works. <laughs> Which brings us elegantly to a great comment that Alex Wilkinson has just offered to us on LinkedIn. Good answer, but I've been stopped out again by Twitter. We all know that feeling these days in the age of social media, which was obviously oh, yeah. long before the heyday of Wells Wilder. And, and as you say, he was calculating all those sorts of things even before you could buy the Commodore PET computer or whatever it was that he was using in those days in order to manage to calculate long before even the Apple II or indeed anything that we would remotely recognize as being what they called in those days the IBM compatible PC. It, it's incredible altogether, actually, looking at the whole thing. Ladies and gentlemen, we're in the last 10 minutes of this discussion this evening. We're here working our way towards a digital market profile with my special guest this evening, Clive Lambert, who's the boss of Futures Text. If you want to ask us a question, bear in mind the fact that there's usually a delay. This is not ultra low latency, so therefore there may be a moment or two between the time you get your question into it arriving within our central node. So ask away right now if you've got a question for Clive. So Clive, I mean, with that, let's just look at, I mean, we've talked about the place in the world for, for technical analysis. You've been interested because you've been talking to us about how you've got lots of major league clients who are large kind of household name investing firms and oil firms and so on, as much as anything else are using the services these days, which is very interesting. How has technical analysis ultimately advanced from the Wells Wilder era of crunching a lot of stuff on a very, very archaic computer? Well, I mean, 
I do my technical analysis for these oil major firms from my shed. <laughs> Not shed. It's my garden room. But um, and that, I think, in, on its own is... It sort of answers that question. You are able to crunch, I am able to, from here, sitting here, crunch huge amounts of, of data very quickly and, 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 and different methodologies and different ways of looking at the market. And so, um, you know, and, and, and then provide that analysis um, to do some pretty serious, yeah, pretty serious players in, in those markets. And I think that, that is the main advancement is the ability to be able to, um, to, to be able to to look at just vast amounts of data, I think 15 years ago, I was at a distinct disadvantage to you know someone. You had Murray Gunn as a guest on um, a few months back, and Murray, in the noughties, was working for HSBC. He had every single data source in the world available to him. I was on a 56k modem, <laughs> you know, and a mouse. Put didn't work and blah 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 so it's the the level the level the, the playing field's been leveled and, and but but actually the actual nuts and bolts methodologies candlesticks is 200 years old profile is 30 years old they're the things i use um what's probably changed is is the uh is 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 people now using technical analysis in certain you know, using chart-based uh, algorithms to um, a lot of my clients I know they're interested in that and playing around with that sort of thing. So they're trying to automate a lot of uh, the TA signals, and um, you know, that's that's an interesting place I think right now. Uh, I obviously don't want that to get too good because it'll put me out of a job. <laughs> There's a certain artisan criteria that you're still maintaining, which brings us neatly, Clive, as we're talking here towards the digital market profile on IPO vid live stream this evening. Martin Watkins, another former guest on the show. Good evening, Martin. It's lovely to have you with us once again. Clive, to what extent are you maintaining the true principles of technical analysis? and adapting to circumstances such as herd mentality tweets in the same way most financial markets <laughs> adapt and react to a changing world. Technical analysis is the study of the herd. You know, um, one of the main tenets of technical analysis is that everything's in the, everything known about a market at any one time is, is in the price. Um, and obviously a tweet can change that for sure but what technical and one of the things that technical analysis assumes uh, is that markets trends markets moving trends and trends persist and trends are created by the herd and excesses are created by the herd getting greedy or fearful and technical analysis is the study of price and price is the arbiter of fear and greed in a market so i mean does that answer i think that answers the question i'm studying you know as a technical analyst i'm studying the yin and yang of fear and greed and trends that are developing thereon and tweets generally uh as i say apart from last week with mr musk uh they generally sort of um Fuel the, fuel the move, 
quite often, to be honest. Interesting. So in other words, it's a little bit like cooking Japanese food. I mean, the rice cooker was an incredible invention which made it a lot easier for us all to make fluffy rice, but ultimately it didn't fundamentally change the way we worked around our yakitori or however you would look at these sorts of things, I suppose. And thank you very much, Mark Watkins, for that excellent question. So we've just got about five minutes left. I'm quite interested. I mean, we're seeing technical analysis, I think, being taken more seriously, being used in more institutions these days. And you've obviously been using technical analysis a lot for professional energy trading clients in recent times. But just give us a little bit of a glimpse of what you think is happening in the world at the moment, Clive, because there's so much taking place. And thank you very much, by the way, Martin Watkins. He's just saying, excellent answer. Thank you very much. So there you go, Clive. Thank you, Martin, for your question as ever. But there's so much happening. So much happening right now. Even even things that Elon Musk hasn't tweeted about are exciting in the world of markets these days. What do you actually think is happening, Clive? I think there's so much news out there, so many places to look for news. There's so many. Twitter is the news. Who do you follow on Twitter? Who do you, it, it's basically so noisy with respect to trying to work out what the bloody hell's going on, that actually looking at the chart is way easier. It takes the, you know, because, yeah, if you do make the assumption that the price is king and the price is is is, is the, you know, is, is the most important thing and it is the reflection of everything that's known about any market at, any, at that very second, then that makes your life, as far as I'm concerned, that makes your life a lot easier. You don't have to worry about where to look to find out why things are moving. Just look at the price. So whatever you do, the price is the most valid thing and the most important thing. So therefore, thinking about the price of a few things right at this point in time with two minutes to go, Clive, where are we? Is this a commodity super cycle that's just kicked off or is in progress? Just had a massive buy signal in gold two weeks ago that said that gold can go to 3,200, I think was one of the targets I, I, I came up with. Um, oil looks very set to um, take out the highs from earlier last year. Um, gas prices are going up. Equity prices are going up. Bond prices look like they were about to, you know, yields up, price down, but they've just steadied. Um, yeah, I think that um, the a lot of a lot of things commodities and equities are still looking pretty bullish um and yes yeah, there could be some serious you know the charts where they are right now suggesting there could be some serious upside in some of these commodity markets still going forward that's quite fascinating so therefore does that mean that we're into this sort of roaring 20s thesis does that mean that we're not quite around 1929 we're actually maybe around 1920 or something yeah i mean yeah yeah you could be right but um what was the the, the old classic um the shoeshine boys story <laughs> um from that era you know yeah um we were discussing it with Dominic Frisbee actually all those years ago. Yes, and actually, I oh, yeah. guessed who it was at the time, and I guessed the wrong person. Dominic Frisbee told me off about it. So, if you want to go back and watch the Dominic Frisbee show, ladies and gentlemen, and you'll be able to tell who it was because I guessed the wrong oligarch, yeah, oligarch at the time. It wasn't JP Morgan, was it? It was no, Joseph, it wasn't Joseph Kennedy, I think. It could have been, could well have been, yes, Joseph Kennedy. 
shoeshine boy tells him to buy stocks. So he walks in off and says, we're selling everything. And the Wall Street crash happened, you know, uh, days later. And, you know, when he walked in the office and said, sell everything, you know, after a 10-year bull market, they all thought he'd lost his marbles. Um, but I'm sorry, there's been quite a lot of shoeshine boy type stories around in lots of things. Uh, maybe a better arbiter. And I think, you know, I think you might like this one. What was the top of the dot-com bubble? AOL buying Time Warner. Time Warner, yes. Time Warner buying yes. AOL. Hell, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, those classic, something happens at the top of every market. And I think you mentioned uh, the timing of the Coinbase IPO. Um, yeah. If you look at that on a Bitcoin chart. Yes, well, I mean, there's obviously a huge correlation between the two as we're looking towards that, which is quite incredible. And that really, I think, probably brings us to the point where we're looking at the idea that gold might reach a high of 3,200. Next week, we're going to have a fascinating discussion with Flip Pido. We're going to be talking about the sharp end of, well, prediction markets with him. He's been a pioneer in that business for many a year. A couple of great shows coming up in the near future. We've got uh, Kenny Policari. He's going to be coming up in two weeks' time as well. Well, actually, in three weeks' time, because we've got uh, a slight a slight pause, I do believe, over the course of uh, early June when we're taking a week off. So, trends persist, ladies and gentlemen. Whether you're looking at Wells Wilder's RSI from the classic early technical analysis number crunching era of the 1970s, or candlesticks from 200 years ago, market profile from 400 to 40 years ago, 30 years ago, or whether you're looking at, well, whatever it is in the world of technical analysis, we're still on our way towards a digital market profile. We've been here with Clive Lambert. He's been talking all about different approaches through the courses of markets, the way that his own client business at Futures Tech has been changing remarkably, and how at the moment he's being fueled by energy in every possible way, which shape and form. Well, however you look at it, ladies and gentlemen, this remains the study of the herd. Thank you very much for being amongst our elegant crowd, because we certainly wouldn't want to call anybody watching this show a member of a stampeding herd at any point in time. Particular thanks to Christopher Messina, Chris Pryor-Williard, Alex Wilkinson and Martin Watkins for your questions during the course of the evening. Particular thanks to Clive Lambert for our guest. I want to thank our executive producer this evening, Beata Trachikovska, our booker, Ola Kalushna, and also thank you very much to the ladies in the gallery. Marianne and Veronica. This is IPO Vid. We're going to be back next week. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Have a great week in life and markets. My name is Patrick L. Young. Thanks for watching.